Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, a graduate school professor, a former seminary president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. Well, as always, thank you, Jim, for joining me. This would be a very boring podcast if you were not here. So thank you. Um, Now, if you don't subscribe, if you're listening and you don't subscribe to Jim's twice weekly blog, you probably don't know that every summer he develops a recommended reading list. And it's normally, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Jim, but it's normally like 10 or so books that you have either read recently or you're hoping to read over the summer. And you just give basically a quick synopsis and then... Your, why you chose that book or what you're looking forward to or what you most enjoyed. But this year you threw us a curveball. Um, so do you care to explain what's different about your list this year? Yeah, um, I had a lot of fun doing it too. I may uh, do that more often. Um, I was getting a lot of questions from our staff here at Mac, uh, mostly our younger staff. And of course, our staff is almost entirely young. <laughs> it's almost everybody. It's like, what is it? Two thirds to three fourths are in their 20s and 30s. But anyway, I was getting, uh, let's just say, a lot of queries just from our staff um, about uh, books on spiritual formation, what I would recommend for them to be reading uh, over the summer for uh, their souls, which, you know, I, I loved the question and I loved the hunger. And so, um, I kept steering them toward books that I could tell made them kind of go, where do you even get that? <laughs> it's like, where, I don't even know. I'm not sure I don't even know what, what we're talking about. I kept steering them toward very old books, what are sometimes called the classics of Christian devotion or uh, classics of Christian spiritual formation. I mean, there's, there's different ways, of classics of uh, uh, Christian spirituality. There's lots of different ways that people will talk about it. And I kept steering them toward uh, old books, very old books that were extremely, have been and continue to be extremely influential in my own life. And, um, and they loved them. I mean, I was getting feedback where they just said, wow, I, I, I don't think I've even read anything like this before. And it, it talked about things in ways that they had never heard talked about before. So it just got me thinking uh, this year, I thought, I'm just going to pick 10 classics of Christian devotion that have, again, been significant to me, but have also stood the test of time. I only kept two or three contemporary, and by contemporary, they probably were at least 50 years old. <laughs> but most of them were coming from the patristic era, uh, the, the 300s, the 400s, up to the, the Middle Ages. And uh, so, yeah, that was my list this year, 10 old books. Now, it's interesting that this is, we, the list is a summer reading list because <laughs> I can't help but think, you know, Christian devotional classics don't really feel like summer reading, right? Like it's not like the beach kind of read that you would pick up to disconnect from life or you know, not take life too seriously. Like you're asking us to do some serious thinking perhaps some really serious introspection. So do you have a sales pitch for why we should put down like yeah. our bookstagram new release and pick up a, I don't know, Francis the sales, for example? Yeah. Um, two, two things come to my mind. One is 
most of the books on my list and many of the classics of Christian devotion are short, extremely. I mean, I don't think a publisher would publish them today. They're, they're so short. Um, and so you can read, I would say at least half of the books on my list in less than an hour. I mean, they're really, really short. So I think that's one plug I'd put in. Uh, but I would, I would, I would make the, it, it deeper. Think of it this way. If there was a book, okay, here's my pitch to you. If there was a book that had inspired and challenged the spiritual life of Christians for over a millennia, despite changing cultures, technologies, languages, verbiage, would that interest you? I mean, if there was a book that had stood that kind of test of time and generation after generation after generation found it to be extraordinarily pivotal to their spiritual life. Um, that's a book I think most Christians who are serious about their faith would want to read. And so the books on my list would fall into that category by and large. Okay, well then- follow We'll take that to the beach. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, well, I'm going to get snarky back with you then. So I have a follow-up question because, all right, I have read a handful. My list is not very long, but I have read a handful of Christian classics. And you're right, like there have been some that have been so formational for me. But that said, when I'm reading them, like I really have to give myself a lot of time to read them. Like there's a lot of them, like you said, are short, but they have so much in them that I feel like I need gosh, a whole year to unpack one. So to think about reading 10 in a summer feels very overwhelming. Well, what? don't do it in a summer. Okay. Don't do it in a summer. Okay. I mean, a summer reading list is not necessarily meant to be, okay, you now have 60 days, get them done. Okay. I think most summer reading lists, the spirit of it is we're all looking for, we might have some empty pockets of time to start reading some new things. So here's a list of things to consider. Um, I would make it more like here's 10 that you should try to read over the next year, or certainly 10 that you want to get around to reading sooner than later, uh, particularly these classics. Second thing that I would say, though, is the way you read these books, I would say, is different than the way you would read other books. I'm a big believer in you read a book the way it was written. You read a book the way it, it, it needs to be read, and you don't read every book the same. Um, and so when it comes to devotional reading, you ought to read it devotionally. And most devotional reading is not done where I'm just, just eating it like a raven ravenously, like a cheeseburger. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm eating it more like a, 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 a multi-course meal and I'm taking my time. Mm. So let me, you mentioned Francis de Sales, what, uh, that uh, his introduction to the devout life um, is, is on the list. I, it is one of the classics. Um, and I, uh, when I read Francis de Sales, that book, um, for the first time, I actually, I came to that one a little bit later in my life. But I was, I was uh, this would have been about maybe 15 years ago, I, I actually first read that book. And, um, and, uh, I took it with me I, on a, on a I, I, in that time, one of the disciplines that I had, I, I still have it in a different form, but in that time, one of the disciplines that I had and that I've had, had for years and years and years and years and years and years and years was a, a monthly, uh, a monthly retreat where I'd go away for 18 hours um, to a little bed and breakfast in the mountains overnight, you know, no technology, no phone, no TV, no contact, just 
books, journals, devotional readings, as such. And all my reading, I would take would always be devotional reading. It was a it was a spiritual retreat for me, coupled with hikes in the mountains and all these other kinds of things. But anyway, but I, I I took Francis de Sales' Introduction to the Devout Life with me, and began it and was uh, blown away. And 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 it was a book to be slowly digested and and pondered. And so what I ended up doing with that particular book, and I've done this with others. Uh, is that um, I ended up taking that book with me on my my monthly retreats for a year. Just that same book? That book. Hmm. And I went through it that slowly, just on my retreats, by and large, reading it and uh, for a year uh, for my monthly retreats. And I I feasted on it. I just feasted on it. Now, I'm not trying to say, uh, 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 take that book out of the others as if that's the best of the 10. I'm just saying that it's an example of how you can read these books and, and they should be read in a certain way. So I would read them in the context that fits their intent, which is devotional writing for the soul, spiritual formation. In other words, these, these authors, almost all of them intentionally wrote as a spiritual mentor, as a spiritual director. And, uh, and you should read it as if, as if you're taking in those kinds of lessons and taking your time with them. So, no, I think that's really helpful because I mean, we live in such an era where like, we're, we're, we're checking off lists, right? We're trying to tackle all 10 or do our summer bucket list. So I think that's really helpful. I think that, um, had you not said that, I think a lot of our leader or listeners or those who get that blog may have thought, okay, I'm going to try to tackle all 10 of these this summer. And then really miss the intention um, behind them. So well, if you're going to be at the beach all day for a whole summer, you can, I mean, you'll have a lot of time that could be devotional. You could be great, but yeah, you're right. You're right. Awesome. Okay. Well, I wonder if for some, this podcast episode, although it is super fun, may seem a little bit out of place because we're supposed to be talking about the intersection of church and culture. So how might a list of Christian devotional classics be relevant to a post-Christian post-modern culture? See, that's the beauty of this conversation um, and, and this podcast, because it allows us to broaden out what does it mean to have our faith intersect culture and, and, and speak to it. And uh, um, to, so two things come to mind when you ask that question. And it, we've actually talked about this before. I can't remember this on, on a podcast or just offline over a coffee or what, but I, I, we've, we've talked about how, and I thought this was just a, a, a very simple but important uh, understanding it was in C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, where he talked about how, how can you call a line crooked if you don't know what a straight line is? Mm. And, and, and so there is a sense where what you get with the classics is you get a sense of what a straight line is. I mean, right now, today in our culture, and I'm just going to speak candidly about um, the evangelical subculture particularly, but in Christian culture as a whole, I mean, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be like Jesus? What, is it, what does it mean to, to live a life reflective of Jesus and that is salt and light in this culture? What, what, what do you mean by a Jesus salt? What do you mean by Jesus light? Um, and so I think that there, there's so much of that right now that's in such disarray and is so rapidly decomposing and, and even uh, transforming into things that I don't recognize as a Christ follower. Hmm. And, and I don't, I, I don't as, a, as a biblical Christian with a Christian worldview, there's much that's going under the guise of Christianity or Christianity is becoming that I don't recognize. And what's sad is, is that, um, uh, it, uh, you know, sometimes I feel 
I mean, uh, like like a lone voice in the wilderness because like we're we're capitulating to culture in so many different ways. So I do think that there is something about uh, knowing, gosh, what is a straight line spiritually? What I mean, and these these ten books, for example, that I gave, that'll give you a stiff drink of what it means to be a Jesus person and to reflect Jesus in terms of uh, the real inside out things. And I think another, and which brings up another reason why I felt very strongly about this. And particularly as I look at younger Christians that I have the privilege of leading or, or directing or mentoring, and, and just I, mean, I just start looking at life through the lens of an older man uh, and, and looking at just a, a younger set of generations, more than one younger than me, you realize that uh, you're always one generation away from losing something. And, and, and the importance of passing on knowledge and passing on the baton. And, and as I've said in, in other settings, the, the, one of the, the really difficult things about our day is that we're rich with information and we're just in poverty when it comes to wisdom. And, and there is, there's, we're not passing wisdom on. Sometimes it's because the, the older generation doesn't even have the wisdom to pass on. But, but even, even like, for example, when I was talking to you know, these younger staff and, and you know, I would mention an author you know, never heard of them. And these are educated, literate, uh, well-read, uh, deep in Christ, committed, answering the call for vocational ministry. And they hadn't even heard of many of these authors. Well, that's not shame on them. That's shame on people like me. Hmm. Uh, so I think it's very important that, that these books not get lost. There's so much is important that it doesn't get lost. But individuals such as myself who may have knowledge of some of these works and, um, and knows their place in the flow and scope of history. Um, it, it's, it, it's not a 20 something's fault that they don't. I didn't at 20. So, so it's important for that to be passed on. So in terms of culture, knowing what a straight line is in terms of just spiritual life and also a sense of passing it on to the next generation is, is, these are decisive issues, I think, related to interplay of church and culture. Well, that begs the question, and perhaps I should have started the podcast this way, but um, when we call them Christian classics of devotion, how would you define a classic? Like, are these unique to you? Like, you would call these classics? Or like, if somebody, because I'm just thinking, just because a book is old doesn't mean it's good. And so how would someone discern what are the books that they should pick up versus the ones they shouldn't? Yeah, well, I alluded to it in an earlier uh, answer uh, was that if a book has stood a test of time where generation after generation for, let's just say, even a, th a thousand years continually keep this book alive and they're talking about it and they're reading it and it's forming them and it's being passed on to the next generation and, and, and you know, is, is speaks volumes, obviously, about the worth of the book. And I, and I would say that until of late, Alexis, we, we knew what the classics were. It was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was common knowledge. They were the books that collectively we knew had, had endured, that had shaped, that had, they were the finest creations. They shaped history. They shaped, and now I'm broadening my understanding to not just classics, Christian devotion, but classics in general. Um, and and uh, they, these are the books that had shaped history and shaped politics and, and shaped civilization and science and economics. They, they were the books that prompted us to think about the great issues of life and to think deeply and, 
and freshly. And um, I mentioned C.S. Lewis. He did simply call them the old books, but what he meant were the old books that had shaped the world, the ones that had had been shaping the world and and had shaped the world for you know the West, for example. If we're talking about the Western classics, had shaped the West since uh, the time of Greece on. And I mean, we're talking ancient books that were still, you know, consider Aristotle and Plato and, and, and uh, you know, books like the Nicomachean Ethics and so many others. And, 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 and just we knew what the great books were. And um, and so I, I do think that, yes, there's a lot more than 10. And so, yes, the list was subjective in terms of me. But um, when you really when you look at the class, the classics of Christian devotion, for example, that aspect of the classics, um, uh, these authors are the ones that are assembled. These authors are the ones that are sampled. These are the ones that are taught about in, in, in advanced, like, for example, graduate level seminary courses. If you were to focus on the classics of Christian devotion, these are the books that you would, you would, you would uh, cover and be introduced to. These are the ones that um, have shaped Christians for generations. And, and yet, you know, again, we're one generation away from losing 2,000 years of formation. Mm. Well, I think, again, in my very limited experience reading, um, um, yeah, Christian classics of devotion, I will say that sometimes it can be a little bit difficult to read them, I mean, for a lot of reasons, but because some of the content is either from a different faith tradition than mine, like Catholic versus Protestant, or has cultural examples that don't seem very relevant, um, or perhaps refer to beliefs that later on in history have been rethought and in light of new information and so I'm wondering, like, is that a, is is my experience normative, or would you would you suggest that? I don't know. I guess how would you suggest that people sort through that? How they take take some aspects of it and leave some behind? No, I think what you said is very true. I think it's true for every modern reader, and I think that the biggest issue facing uh, a modern Christian reader of particularly the books that were that came out of the Middle Ages. Um, less so for the patristic era, era the, in the first five centuries, but certainly from the 500s to about the 1500s, roughly, maybe a little bit later. I think the main issue is that you're going to come head to head with what was really the heart of how Christianity was presented during much of the Middle Ages. And so you can run into Catholicism, uh, both culturally and theologically and just institutionally. Uh, it was it was the air in which these writers breathed. Um, and and. So you, you do need to sort that out and read it with an eye of discernment. Um, and, and, and there's a couple of things I would say to that. Let me just assume that, I'm, let me just pretend I'm going to talk to a Protestant because a Catholic wouldn't have as many issues. But I'm talking to a Protestant, I would say, look, a couple of things. Number one, this is written by a Catholic. Get over it. Second, I would say their, their, their Catholic moorings, particularly as they manifested themselves during the Middle Ages, which had a lot of trappings that went beyond theology and just institutionalism and order and authority and 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 certain even aspects of tradition that were embraced at a theological level. I said you're going to need to read it with your with your thinking cap on and realize that. And and if you're not if you don't feel like you can, you know, mine or or, or um, harvest from this field and separate what you think is the wheat from the chaff, then, okay, then maybe you shouldn't read it, but I think, I think you can. And, and, and in fact, I even say, and if you want to read it and talk about it together, we can do that together. Um, the key is to find when you're reading a book like this, what is truly a spiritual practice? I think it's actually fairly easy to read. 
and sort it all out because it's, it's very easy to see when they go onto a, a ramp around about, I don't know, something with the Pope or Mary or whatever, and you're going, oh, I know, I'm not, look for what is the spiritual practice when they're talking about prayer, or they're talking about scripture, or they're talking about um, um, the practice of the presence of God or something like that. And so um, most of the books are written from uh, the classics, a, a bit of a mystical uh, tradition, and it's less theological, so it's not really as big of an issue. Um, I think the one that was probably would <laughs> we keep coming back to Francis and Sales. The Sales probably would be the one where you'd have to sort through his his Catholicism, Catholicism most. He was actually the one sent to deal with the Reformation and Calvin uh, from the Catholic Church, and many would say he actually dealt with it. <laughs> he, he, he was a sharp guy, and he was beloved, and he was loved. You know, he, it was almost like people said, even if I disagree with his theology, I can't disagree with the man that he is. And so uh, DeSales is just an interesting guy across the board. But I mean, you, 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 um, you, you, you need to read it. And I think you can sort through that. I mean, I wouldn't throw some of these books at a, at a 14 year old, you know, just starting out, but, um, and maybe not a brand new Christian who just met Christ and they're 19 or something. Uh, but those who are a little more seasoned in Christ and are able to be, I'm not meaning this in a condescending way, but have the, the, the length of time with Christ and the knowledge of scripture and the grounding in their faith to, to, to mine something from a different era and perhaps even a different branch of the Christian faith that may have language or understandings that are a little alien to them. I, I mean, it's, it's a gold mine. And so I, I would encourage people that they can do this. Well, it sounds like too, based on your own experience that it could even be beneficial to go back to the same book at different seasons of your life and different seasons of your spiritual maturity. Like, I, I don't imagine that you've only read these books one time each, but rather. No. And, and another thing too, when I, and I mean, just, this has prompted me to say something else. When I say that if you're a Protestant, you're trying to sort through the Catholic stuff, maybe just a Catholic baggage that was, was of the middle ages. It's not even a part of the Catholic church today. I do not mean, I, I really want to say to all Protestants, if you can't read a Catholic writer and, and glean from them stuff about Jesus, and I don't get it because, you know, you're, you're talking about the, the, some of the richest stuff that's, I mean, that's our history too. That's our tradition. That that's our, that's our, I mean, I mean, that that's, that's my faith tradition as well. As a Protestant, that's still my church history. And these were writers that walked with Christ and I can learn from them and I want to learn from them. And they have so much to give me um, Catholic or Protestant or, you know, um, the, from the, the broad Christian mosaic. So I would encourage people not to kind of get pigeonholed like that, but you're right in that you revisit these at different times in your life. And, there are books that are worth rereading, particularly, um, and there's one I'll mention at the very end. Uh, I, I think there's an, uh, hopefully an opening for me to do that. But um, that I come close to reading dangerously every 24 months. Okay. Well, so for somebody who has never read any of these before, do you have one? It could be from your list or, or maybe not if you didn't put it on there, but do you have one in mind that you'd suggest that they begin with? Yeah. Brother Lawrence, Practice of the Presence of God. It's easily the most accessible simple. The idea is easy to get. The message is easy to grasp, and it's a powerful one. And uh, it's, the book is usually assembled with some of his own personal correspondence, and then someone who interviewed him. It's kind of an interesting format. He didn't really sit down to write a book. It was really, he, was a, he was a cook in a monastery, and that's what he, he was a cook in a monastery. And yet he was considered one of the most devout men that had ever been around, and, and people just wrote down what he said. And, and, and um, 
and uh, there's a wonderful line in there where he says, I turn the omelet over in my pan out of the love of God. Mm. And he's just this wonderful thing, but easy, accessible. I would start off with there. I'd go then next to a more recent one, one of the more recent on the list, Thomas Kelly, Quaker writer, um, uh, Testament of Devotion. It's a very accessible book, short, uh, wonderful. And then either Thomas Akempis's Imitation of Christ uh, or uh, go way, way, way early to the rule of St. Benedict and actually read the rule and, and understand you're reading a monastic rule written, you know, here's how we're going to do monastic life, but it's, it's, it's soul stirring. And, um, and then um, uh, the heaviest, hardest books on the list that uh, I would just, just be, uh, let people know, again, in full disclosure, this is, these are the hardest ones most dense would be uh, probably Teresa of Avila's Interior Castle and then Augustine's Confessions yeah. uh, would be the two. Okay. And two of the longer ones too. Now you mentioned earlier and you also wrote your blog um, that there's a real danger today for forgetting the Christian classics. Um, so kind of on that note, other than just a podcast like this or your blog, do you have any ideas for ministry leaders as to how they might incorporate this more into the life of the contemporary church? Yes. Oh, yes. good. <laughs> Thank you for softball pitches. Uh, read them. I implore Christians to, to read them. Um, and you mentioned specifically ministry leaders. Please read them. I mean, this is what will put you on the cutting edge of a spiritual life and feed your soul. Who's going to feed your soul? You need, you need to be mentored. And, 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 uh, there's such a rich well of historical mentors. So, uh, you know, I, I, I've been mentored by these people. I consider them my mentors, read them, uh, refer to them in, uh, in ways that expose people to these books. Um, I would, um, obviously, uh, recommend them like I had mentioned that that's what started this all off for me is just that someone comes to me and says, Hey, I'm looking for a good book here. And you might immediately think of something that just came out, uh, you know, this past year for some spiritual life. And you might forget about a classic that would just, they could feast on. Um, so I would read them. I would refer to them. I would recommend them, you know, quote them, but as I mean, I refer to them. And then the last thing I would say, and I don't want to take up too much time on this because I don't, I don't know how we're doing on podcast time and you're the one that keeps up with that. But um I hope this doesn't go too far field, but let me just say it. I wish Christian leaders would become advocates for developing bookstores through their church. Um, because, uh, and that would be a fun podcast and all the ministry of a bookstore and how that can be. But we all know bookstores have died. Um, everything's Amazon. Uh, Christian bookstores have certainly died. Um, there's no, none of the chains anymore. And so where does a Christian go to find out where's a good Christian book, good Christian literature, and what, what should I be reading and what's trash and what's not trash. And the church has a, a unique, uh, opportunity to step in and provide. And I know this people, I think list is only for larger churches. I don't necessarily agree with that, but let's just not worry about that right now. It's more easily done than people think, but you know, if, if a church provides a bookstore, it not only is it's, it's that that bookstore is not having to turn a profit they, they can stock the books that are the good books that need to be there and the classics and 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 make sure it has the inventory that's needed and they can be vetted so that people can go in there and have confidence with whatever it is that they're getting is is biblically orthodox and 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 you can you can um you can afford to have the carry the kind of books that even even 
before the bookstores all fell, they couldn't afford to carry books like this, you know, really books where we don't care, for example, if it sits on the shelf for six months before it's sold or if it's sold, we just want to make sure that we have that book and that kind of book in stock. And so I think that's another way that ministry leaders can, can help with a lot of stuff related to our culture, which is to have a bookstore as a ministry, as a mission. And again, that might be a future podcast. <laughs> well, I'll be all in for that conversation. Too. I know you would. Uh, now you did live it in your blog. And I think you alluded to this earlier too, that there were obviously there are more than 10 classics of Christian devotion that you have read and have enjoyed. So what are a couple of those that you wish you could have included, but you didn't? Yeah, I actually mentioned in the blog that I particularly regretted that there was only one female author. Um, uh, there was diversity in other ways, you know, this, you know, this writer was from Spain, this writer was from this place, but in terms of male, female, there was only one female. Um, and so I, 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 you know, we could have included Simone Weil, we could have included um, Julian of Norwich, more recently, uh, Dorothy Sayers, mm -hmm. who a lot of people don't realize, even are familiar with her, but she was actually one of the Inklings. I don't know if she was the only female Inkling with C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and, and the others. Uh, she was a formidable intellect. So uh, I would have been nice to have included, broadened the list out to have included more uh, women. Yeah, in all fairness, there just weren't as many things published by women, though, in most of the time. No, yeah. and what did come was from usually uh, abbesses, mm -hmm. you know, um, and from from uh, monasteries and women who were um, leading those convents. Well, we're getting close to the end of our podcast time. So um, just for fun, I was, I was curious, what titles do you think that we, we are going to be talking about in 100 years or so, calling them like the classics of our day? Yeah. Well, I know there's, let me, let me, let me answer that. And there's only one that I hope that I, I truly passion. This is, so you're giving me my opportunity to say the one, one book. Oh yeah, good. That I read every, every so often. Um, I, I think there's some really good writing going on right now that has uh, already stood a longer test of time than, or shelf life than most books that are written. I think the writings of Dallas Willard have been well-received and, and Thomas Merton um, and uh, Henry Nowen. I think that they're, I don't know that they'll, I don't know where they'll be in a hundred years, but there's one book it, that I read every two to three years that has already stood a pretty long test of time uh, at least a half a century, and I hope is around in 100 years from now. And you probably, you know me well enough, you may smell this one coming, but a female author, Corey Tinboom, her book, The Hiding Place. I, I, I cannot begin to tell people how spiritually formative that book has been for me and just challenging. It, it, it's, it's not about new ideas. It's about personal challenge from a life that was lived in Christ. And uh, she is a, a heroine of mine. She is a spiritual mentor to me. Um, uh, I wished I'd met her in this life. I look forward to meeting her in the one to come. I've made spiritual pilgrimages to Harlem. I've been in her, the watchmaker, the Tin Boom place. I've been upstairs and seen the hiding place. I've, I've you know, uh, and I have a, in my house, and you know this because you've been in my home, and uh, I have a clock from the tin boom watch that I bought. I've got a tin boom clock mm. from, from that watch shop that's very dear to me. 
but the hiding place. Uh, and if none of the things I just mentioned know any, mean anything to you. Read the book. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a biography. It, it reads very easy. It's not a hard read, and I find it one of the most spiritually challenging books. Uh, one of that I've ever read, and um, um, yeah. Well, I appreciate your time. And I should have started by saying we will link the, the blog with the full reading list in the show notes, um, as well as the other titles that um, Jim just mentioned. So hopefully this gives you a lot to read over the summer or maybe just one or two books to read over the summer, but hopefully that will be worth your time. So again, thanks as always for joining us and we hope to have you back again next week. Thank you for listening to this week's installment of the Church and Culture Podcast with Dr. James White. We hope it was not only informative, but challenging and the start to an ongoing conversation. To stay up to date with all the latest, check out the daily headline news and subscribe to the Church and Culture blog, all found at churchandculture.org. You can even keep up with Jim by following him on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at James Emery White. We hope you'll join us next week. Goodbye for now.